Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper. With me today is Russell Moore, CT's Editor-in-Chief. And we're going to be talking about anti-Semitism, an update in the ongoing controversy around abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And we're going to finish talking about Advent and Christmas. So stay with us. Okay, Russell, we'll, we'll start with this. Let me pose a question to you. Okay. Let's imagine a friend invites you to dinner. He brings along a companion that you've never met before. And afterwards, someone elbows you and says, hey, you know, that guy is one of the world's leading white supremacists and anti-Semites. What would you do in that situation? Well, it's not actually a fair comparison because <laughs> I, I know what I would do. Uh, but uh, the situation that we're talking about in the news this week is so much worse precisely mm-hmm. because I don't have a vetting process. Uh, I don't have a Secret Service uh, detail. And so we're, 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 of course, referring to the the dinner between uh, former President Trump and the artist formerly known as Kanye West and notorious uh, Nazi symbol. Sympathizer and anti-Semite and racist uh, groiper Nick Fuentes. That's a situation where you just don't end up in a oops, I can't believe that happened situation right. when you're the former president of the United States. I, I've I've met with lots of former presidents. Uh, I remember one occasion when I was bringing someone with me who's uh, literally a Navy SEAL and mm. and probably the, the most upright and uh, co- least controversial person I've ever known. And it took a lot of just mm. vetting for that person to, to get in there. So it's I, I've noticed a lot of people after the, the news came out about uh, Mar-a-Lago, President Trump, Having having dinner with this person, a lot of people saying, "Well, uh, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners," uh, which is also a ridiculous comparison. When Jesus right. is, for instance, going to Zacchaeus's house and calling him to repentance, I mean that's not a that's not a fair uh, comparison. And the other part of it being, it's not just that the dinner happened. It's the fact that all this time after that, there's not a repudiation of this really awful and really clearly awful uh, person. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what I am most surprised by all of this. And I, I surprise is the wrong word because I don't think I'm surprised yeah. by anything at this point. Even in the aftermath of this, right? The easiest thing to do, even if you're a liar, the easiest thing to do to recover in a moment like this is to say, I had no idea who this guy is. I repudiate everything that he's about, blah, blah, blah. You know, it would have been easily done. And of course, that that hasn't happened. And I mean, part of the reason it isn't surprising in the first place is the fact that Kanye West has been 
on a tear for the mm-hmm. last month, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, of, yeah. of anti-Semitic comments. You know, his return to Twitter was, I'm going to go death con three on the Jews in the yeah. morning, which yeah. neither subtle. understands the nuclear escalation codes <laughs> right. or the word death con. <laughs> right, right. I thought about uh, Ben Shapiro uh, actually said this week, the best way not to get into a situation of accidentally dining with an anti-Semite you don't know is not to accept an invitation to dine with the notorious anti-Semite you do know. And so uh, even if, well, no one knew who Nick Fuentes is, the fact that uh, Ye has been over the time, I mean, it's, it's been in the middle of the national news, the anti-Semitism uh, mm-hmm. here, that in and of itself ought to be a glaring light. What worries me about this, Mike, is not so much uh, the Trump Factor Because I think there are a couple things involved there. I mean, one, according to The Guardian, he doesn't want to upset the part of his base that is down with that. But also, he doesn't like to acknowledge um, doing something wrong. When when Mm -hmm. Mike Pence said this week that President Trump should apologize, that's not going to happen and is never going to happen. That's not what's so surprising to me. What's surprising to me is the fact that we have this resurgent anti-Semitism again. We saw mm-hmm. it on the left in Great Britain just a few years ago in a really concentrated way. We see it on the right right now all around the world. Same sorts of tropes and can easily lead us into the same kinds of dangers. I mean, think about the things that were being said in uh, pre-World War II Germany. Uh, mm-hmm. about Jews and the way that uh, the, the rest of the world would say, well, it's just not, it's not serious. Right. They're Germans. They have problems with Jews. This stuff leads to awful catastrophic mm-hmm. consequences and has over and over again. Yeah, I think the context on this is really interesting because this is something that I've cared a lot about and and been invested in in various ways for a long time. And I think part of what's critical for Christians to know and to be thinking about is that this is a thousand-year-old sickness in the West, yes. um, if, if not more. And it really begins, I mean, part of the irony of this is, you know, you hear in anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric, they talk about the Jews are controlling the world because the Jews are controlling money. They have their fingers in all of these governments and all the rest of it. And the origin of that story is that Jews in Europe, Jews in Western Europe throughout the Middle Ages, they were stateless people. They weren't part of the Roman Catholic Church or structure. Because they were stateless, because they were a minority, they had connections across international borders. And they didn't have laws against practices of of usury, of giving credit, of, of making loans and this sort of thing. And so what you had is you had a community that wasn't necessarily tied to an, the ethnic identity of whatever state, whatever kingdom they were a part of. You had connections across borders, and you had people who were willing to do things in banking that the Roman Catholic Church forbade. Now, of course, today, all of those practices are very common. No church forbids, you know, the, the kind of things that were, that were a part of that whole practice. But it's the origin of these theories that became exaggerated and became bloody and disgusting. And it's not just these stories of the control and, you know, the the sort of coded language around globalists and, mm-hmm. and the stuff that's been around for a long time. Yeah. It's also when you hear the stories about 
QAnon and uh, Comet Pizza and the rest about drinking the blood of children, sacrificing children, all the rest of it, those also go back to these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that are five, six, seven hundred years old. You know, the fact that as a as a culture, we have a significant portion of people that are playing footsie with all of this right now. Like you said, I mean, it's this is not stuff to me that we should be taking lightly, you know, and and just saying, oh, these these fringe guys, Kanye needs to take his medicine, mm-hmm. you know, Trump. And and there is truth to the fact that uh, Noah Rothman put it this way at commentary. Noah Rothman said, you know, Trump will have dinner with anybody who flutters his eyes at him. And that's true. Yeah. But the fact that that the 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 window of acceptability has gotten this wide should alarm all of us. But it won't. This will simply uh, go away as as everything else has, but it, it may go away in terms of the public eye and the public controversy while it grows. And as Christians, I think the, the main thing that we should be thinking about right now is this is the number one sign historically of a paganizing uh, Christianity, mm-hmm. a nominal sort of Christianity. The sort of religion that wants to have Christianity as a national kind of identity, but wants to disconnect from Jesus. Hmm. Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is a Galilean from Nazareth. And the the idea of, you think of what uh, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, stood up against, uh, what Karl Barth stood up against in the Barman Declaration, is the idea of the German Christians during the time of Nazi Germany wanting to come in and take out, for instance, Jewish sounding words like amen and hallelujah from Christian vocabulary to de-emphasize the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets, to de-emphasize those those parts of the New Testament, of which there are so many that talk about uh, talk about the continuity between the the Israel as the people of God and the church as the people of God. Those sorts of things, it shows you a very dark, and I would even say demonic, satanic uh, sort of move, that when we just dismiss it as, oh, that's just some people, that's what they do, we're really missing something serious. And I think the heart of it, when you, especially when you get to the demonic element of it, I, I, I agree, because I think at the heart of this kind of hatred, where you identify a, a an ethnic group and say, this is the source of all of our problems. Yes. You are paving the road to murder. And it might be murder of a, you know, it might be a handful of extremists. It might be a, a guy who marches into the Tree of Life uh, synagogue mm-hmm. and, and brings a gun, but it also might be on a mass scale. And the disturbing thing about the last hundred years is you have Nazi Germany, the murder of six million Jews and, and five million others, but you have other cases of of this kind of scapegoating genocide that mm-hmm. take place on a smaller scale, but still in the thousands, hundreds of thousands in certain places. Um, and this idea that, well, it wouldn't happen here, it, it couldn't happen again, you know, we're we're too enlightened, we're too this, that, and the other. Man, you had a Nazi sympathizer sitting down with the former president of the United States. And that is 
five years ago, well, maybe not five years ago, 10 years ago, yeah. someone would have said, oh, that would never happen. That would never happen. Um, yeah. And here we are. Well, and also I think we have to remember in our history, what did away with the resurgent uh, anti-Semitism that we were seeing uh, in this country? Charles Lindbergh, the America First Committee, the uh, talk radio hosts, uh, such as uh, Father uh, Coughlin and, and, and others, Gerald L. K. Smith, these figures in the 1930s who were who were beating this drum. What happened to stop that? It was Pearl Harbor. The, the country went into a war uh, against ultimately against uh, Nazi Germany. That's what did away with it, not the moral repudiation of it. And so it keeps coming back. And mm-hmm. and the move that anti-Semitism makes is because you can you can scapegoat people really in one of two ways. You can either say these people are less than human. These are, are animals. These are insects. You, you see those metaphors being used. Or you have the idea these people are so powerful that they're controlling everything. What mm-hmm. anti-Semitism does is to take both of those satanic means of scapegoating and put them together in one move. Mm-hmm. of uh, anti-Semitism. And you you see it. And again, I think there's a reason why. And Revelation 12, I think, shows us the reason why that this is so persistent. The mm-hmm. dragon seeks to devour uh, the child of the woman. Satan hates Jesus. And Jesus is of the house of David, of the house of Abraham, and so hates everybody who shares those uh, characteristics and is a murderer from the beginning, revels in hatred and violence toward other people. And anti-Semitism can put all of those things together in Mm -hmm. really destructive ways. And the last thing I think is worth pointing out on this as well is that I would say the the third thread to attach to that is this ethno-nationalism that emerges. Yeah. Because when you have this idea, and it's it's more and more prominent in Christendom right now, you have this idea that we have this, this sort of Western ideal, this culture, these people, it's Christian, it, it, you know, it's defined by these specific borders. The Jewish people don't fit inside of that for a yeah. variety of reasons. And that very swiftly turns into... They don't belong here. You know, you have language in Christian nationalist circles right now uh, trying to sort of redefine who belongs, who's who can be a citizen, who can't be a citizen. Again, like, you know, the 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 cliche that, what is it, Goddard's law, that, you know, any argument on the internet is going mm-hmm. to immediately become about the Nazis. But in the case of anti-Semitism, it should. <laughs> because yeah. one of the first things that the Nazis did was they revoked the citizenship of, of every Jew in Germany. Because that paves the way. Because now there's no one to protect them. They have no place to go. There's no, there's no government. They've lost their rights. And so all of that rhetoric we should view with a tremendous amount of suspicion. I'm haunted often by just a, a maybe a throwaway comment that someone was making about a, a Christian figure in the United States. Doesn't matter whether or not it's accurate to apply to this person, but it it's, gets at something I think bigger. This reviewer said, this person would rather be in a community of atheists with Christmas trees than in a community of Sudanese Christians. Hmm. That's the uh, idea of Christianity here. And there's a sense in which that is the definition of Christianity in many places in the world right now. It's us. It's our ethnicity. It's our nationality. 
we're the people who have these sort of cultural symbols and we hold on to them. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it mm-hmm. is it is right at the heart of so much in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Jesus uh, standing up and giving his, his first sermon in the Nazareth uh, synagogue, taking this stuff on. It's, it's there everywhere. And you have to have the kind of Christianity that peels all that stuff off, which means peels off Jesus, peels off the Holy Spirit, peels off God, peels off the new birth. And what you have left is paganism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I heard a story that I think gets at ways we can start creatively thinking about Christians in the church responding in the moment. And the story was there was a neighborhood where there was some kind of resurgent anti-Semitism in this community. You had a neighborhood where every house in the, you know, every house in the neighborhood had a Christmas tree in the window, except for one that had a menorah in it. Mm-hmm. And one night the window was was smashed and somebody mm-hmm. took the menorah and just trashed it and destroyed it in the driveway. And you can imagine the terror, you know, of the family that experienced that. And then the next night, every house in the neighborhood had mm-hmm. a menorah in the window next to the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. When you think about the continuity of the church Mm -hmm. and the Jewish people, there really is something beautiful in the image by itself. But I think as well, there is this importance of saying this, that's a way of saying this person is my neighbor in the New Testament sense of this is my neighbor and I'll stand with them and violence against them is violence against all of us. We have to be the people who say, no, never again. Never again, we're going to stand with Jesus on this. And it's not just that Jesus was Jewish. Jesus <laughs> is Jewish. Jesus right. is alive and is, is still a descendant of Abraham and of David. That's important to keep in mind. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. So this week in the news, Johnny Hunt returned to the news. And for those who aren't familiar with Johnny Hunt, he was a very prominent pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention. He served as the president of the convention from, I believe, 2008 to 2010. He was also a three-decade-long pastor at a church in, in Woodstock, Georgia. And in May of this year, he was serving as the vice president of the North American Mission Board, which is the the Baptist organization that's planting churches and and doing all kinds of evangelism across the country. May of this year, a significant report was released that I believe was sort of years in the making in terms of all that, that went into getting the report, getting the investigation done. 
that looked into sexual abuse, the history of sexual abuse inside of the SBC. And one of the stories that came out of that report, it was an allegation about Johnny Hunt, alleging that he essentially forced himself on another woman, sort of a family friend. And the report goes into somewhat significant detail uh, in terms of what she alleges. When the report came out, immediately Hunt denied that all of this took place. He said, uh, quote, I vigorously deny the circumstances set forth in the Guidestone report. And then two days later, he admits that sexual impropriety took place, but denied that it was abusive. He resigned from his church. He resigned from North American Mission Board, stepped away from ministry. And now, six months and a few days later, he has essentially said, I'm returning to ministry panel of four pastors came in support of him and said they've been overseeing a restoration process and that he's ready to come back. Russell, obviously, you're intimately familiar with these stories and many of the people involved, probably more than you would like to be at this point. Maybe you could contextualize this a little bit for us and help us understand what is happening and what does this mean that he's back to ministry? Well, I've known Johnny Hunt for many, many years. I've preached uh, in his church. Um, and, and one of the things I think that people who aren't in a Southern Baptist context don't get is how beloved a figure uh, this was. He was he was always the only person, about the only person I could think of who would sort of transcend all of the different tribes in Southern Baptist life. Everybody loved Johnny Hunt. And so this was a shock in a way that some of these other scandals have not been. And when you look at this, I mean, it's a pattern that we see. A, A person comes out and says, there's no truth to this at all. This is an attack from the devil. Then there turns out there are some receipts usually. uh, And the person comes back and says, well, that happened, but uh, nothing as bad as what I'm being charged with actually happened. And then there is this, um, there's this attempt to sort of lay low until there's a time when one can come back. And you just, you look at this and you see that video made me sick. And and by video, I refer to the video of the four pastors who were announcing that Johnny Hunt is ready and back uh, for ministry because of not just the fact that this is just seven months after this, but the way that they would speak of the incident or when this occurred as though the uh, alleged victim was nobody. Uh, she's just she's she's just erased from this, and it's all about an incident that this person went through, and even using the language of well, Johnny Hunt is the is the man beaten by the side of the road, and we have to be the Samaritans who come and care for him. And you think I cannot believe the hubris of this, mm-hmm. uh, but. We can believe the hubris of this because we see it over and over and over again in evangelical life. And just a day later, it's revealed that he was a, he was a speaker at a, a Southern Baptist church uh, conference uh, with a lot of other very controversial figures in SBC life. And when, when he was withdrawn from that, the conference organizer said, well, it hasn't been enough time. I mean, and I say this as somebody who my entire life and identity was shaped by Southern Baptist life. And I watch people who are in a perpetual outrage 
about the idea of women pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention, of which I know of zero. I don't know <laughs> one church. Uh, and, and that is a cause for immediate action and adding it to the Constitution and doing Twitter threads about it and doing petitions about it. But when you're dealing with this, this rot, it becomes, well, you know, what can you do? Or just a stunned silence. I mean, mm-hmm. that, I, I really think that people outside of the SBC, people in, in any sort of denomination, ought to look at this and say, how does that happen? And how do we prevent it from happening in our church, in our network, or our denomination? There's this cycle when you look at the psychology of abusive leaders. There's this cycle that they talk about, which is referred to as villain, victim, victor. So when someone's abuse is exposed, the response is often, like they'll they'll reach a point where they can't avoid it anymore, and they take on the role of the villain. You know, Mm -hmm. I I did this, I'm so ashamed, you know, I need to, I need to, you know, in the church, it's often, there's a lot of holy water thrown on it in terms Mm -hmm. of Christian language and, and the rest. But then the next cycle is this is this moment. This has been so hard for me. My family, mm-hmm. we've cried for days. I, there's no tears left, you know. And and like you said, when you get to that victim stage, the actual alleged victim of, of whatever else has gone on has disappeared from the conversation entirely. And then the return to the stage is the, the victor. This, look what I've done. I've been through this process. I've been restored. I've got these men standing alongside me. Now I'm the victor. Now I've, you know, I come back better than ever. At one point, one of the, the men in the video says, uh, we really believe the, the best days of ministry are ahead for, <laughs> for Johnny Hunt. Yeah. And I'm like, again, the work I've done in studying church abuse in the last few years no one ever uses that phrase when good things are happening. Correct. That phrase only shows up yeah. when things are really bad and and you're you're trying to ready someone for that triumphant return. And is it any wonder? I mean, not not just in this situation, but you, you look at the bigger picture here. And I'm thinking about this as somebody who's talking to survivors of sexual abuse literally every day. Uh, who have lived through this, many of them who have who have stepped forward to tell their stories. Is there any uh, question as to why so many uh, are are feel unable or or feel uh, feel as though they they can't uh, tell their stories? It's because in case after case after case, you see these survivors who are at best sort of erased from the picture and and not even mentioned. And at worst, and far more uh, common, have their lives absolutely destroyed uh, by people. They're they're called Jezebels. They're called Potiphar's wife. Uh, there will be all kinds of maneuvers, including legal maneuvers, uh, sometimes to silence them. And you you look around and you say, what about the little girl in some church who's seeing all of that and says, I can't. I can't tell this because I see what will happen. That's chilling. And that's, yeah. that's really one of the things that has, to, that has to change. And if you think about 1 Timothy, uh, I mean, again, I come back to all the hysteria about the non-existent women pastors uh, in the SBC. 1 Timothy 2 is the text that addresses that. And evangelical Christians have different perspectives uh, on that. I understand that. But it's amazing to me how how few people pay attention to the rest of it. 
I mean, you, you have people in evangelical Christian life who have unhinged tempers and uh, perpetual quarreling, uh, which is explicitly forbidden for, for pastors and leaders in First Timothy uh, 2. You have First Timothy 3 that explains what the qualifications for pastor are, including being above reproach uh, with outsiders. No one who has used his position for sexual exploitation uh, of someone over whom he has spiritual authority should ever be in that situation again. That's mm-hmm. that's not a lack of forgiveness, a lack of uh, restoration. That's what the Bible commands. And the fact mm-hmm. that we can't see that shows us how much of this really is a good old boys type network. And that's what Bart Barber, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, put out a statement uh, sort of explaining to the rest of the world, uh, you should see this as four of Johnny's friends saying that he should be in ministry. This isn't any sort of authoritative uh, counsel. Yeah, I, I thought the image of the four guys around the table talking about the last four months, to me, it's a, it's a perfect illustration of exactly what you just said. That is an image of power. Those are four powerful men leading Mm -hmm. churches, positions of influence. Johnny is a a person with tremendous influence and power or was at Mm -hmm. one time. So there's a magnetic power to his presence. And there's something very attractive to the human heart that wants to sort of flatter and be close to and, Mm -hmm. and sort of live off the glow of somebody in that kind of position. And like you said, that image was profound to me because absent from that image and absent from that conversation is any semblance of understanding, compassion for the other woman in this story, who he has admitted there was physical contact. There was an inappropriate encounter between the two of them. So it's not as though he's even accusing her that this is all a lie and made up and all the rest of it. They're contesting over what what the nature of it was. And I think what's important to keep in mind in that Again, the image itself, the absence of her, tells you a whole lot about the power differential and how that may have played into those events as they unfolded. And also, Hannah Anderson, who was on the bulletin a few weeks ago, uh, put up a tweet that I thought was really right at the heart of this. It was Bart Simpson writing on a blackboard, I am not special, I am not essential, I am not special, I am not essential. And part of what enables this kind of uh, behavior is that you do have these very needy, broken, often people who believe that they are special and essential and that the church cannot survive without them. And so here I am, I'm back. And that's just not a Christian view of what ministry is. Yeah, that, that kind of gets to the last thing I wanted to talk about with it, which is which is the need to return, you know? Yeah. I don't imagine Johnny Hunt is trying to get back into ministry because he needs a job, right, right. at this point in his life. Right. And what I thought a lot about, again, looking at that image, and, and there was another restoration recently where I, I sort of thought the same thing, which is what's happening in the heart of a leader who's had this kind of moral failure and who's like broken the promises that they've made as an elder in that calling. What does it tell us about the human heart of that leader that, that they have to get back and they have to get back as soon as, as soon as they can. And, you know, again, sort of one of the things Chuck DeGroat talks about, and I think where his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church is so helpful 
is he helps us understand the way that someone's, you know, someone's often attracted to the pulpit because they're dealing with their inner demons there. Mm -hmm. There's something about the crowd. There's something about being able to stand in front of people, feel the glow, feel the sense that you're the spiritual hero. I mean, it's just a heck of a drug. And it, it also reminds me of what Andy Kolber says, which is that what we don't own in ourselves, we we repeat. Mm -hmm. And if we're pushing in ministry or pushing in leadership, trying to satisfy whatever is broken and wounded in us, we're just going to perpetuate that damage until it's healed. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. All right, Russell, so we've talked about rising anti-Semitism. We've talked about ongoing conflict, corruption, abuse in the church, cheery subjects, all of them. Mm. Um, and last Sunday was the first Sunday in Advent. And, and I think in a way, when we understand Advent for what it is, it's, it's neatly appropriate to the moment. Because, you know, for, for those who didn't grow up in a tradition that really celebrated Advent, the, the four weeks before Christmas were not spent singing Christmas carols, putting out mangers with the baby Jesus on it. They're really spent in a season of, of anticipation, a season of reflection on the longing for, for Christ to come, the longing for Christ to return. Fleming Rutledge, in, in her book on Advent, you know, one of the things she talks about is that we, you know, even inside the tradition that, that celebrates the liturgical year in that way, that oftentimes it's still treated as, well, this is just the prelude to Christmas. And what, what she argues is, and I think rightly, is that, no, actually, it's, it's deeper than that. This is a season where we practice anticipation. We practice that, that sense of waiting and longing. You know, as I was reading her in the last couple of weeks, and I was thinking about all of this stuff, and I was also thinking about you know, all the, the ways as a culture, whether it's in the church or, you know, in the marketplace or whatever else, Christmas is already here, you know? Mm -hmm. And my sort of running joke about it has been that it's it's the opposite of when the kids show up in Narnia, where it's always winter and never Christmas. <laughs> it's always Christmas and never winter. And I wonder if with this kind of season in the church that's reckoning with so much, if we really don't need a sense of Advent. And and for two reasons. One is there's an appropriateness to meeting the moment by saying, how long, O oh Lord? I really believe that. But the other thing that Advent does that I think is so helpful, it, it should rid us of our utopian idealism, that if we just get the church right, if we get our theology mm -hmm. right, if we get the nation and the politics, we get the right people in power— Everything's going to be great. Mm -hmm. Advent goes, no, <laughs> the world is dark and it needs light and Christ has come, but also Christ is going to return. And we live in this tension where we will see suffering again and again. I wonder, have you reflected on that? I, I imagine you did not grow up in a Southern Baptist church that was lighting an Advent wreath no, uh, week no. to week. 
No, so. that's why I started to say I'm the last person to really advise people on Advent. I'm from as low church as one can get. Our liturgical uh, Christian calendar was fall revival, spring revival, and vacation Bible school. So <laughs> uh, you know, that, that was the uh, extent of it. I think even for people who aren't going in the direction of a, a Christian church year, there ought to be a sense of what the Christmas story is, which is light in the darkness. So that, I mean, even when we come to the birth of Jesus himself, good tidings of, of great joy for all peoples, it's in the context of a king who's seeking to, to murder uh, the Christ child. It's in the context of, of a throne of David that is not occupied uh, at the moment. And a, a people of God who are being occupied by a, a foreign power and who ultimately the Holy Family has to flee to Egypt. I mean, all of those things are there in a way that it makes me think of what Jesus says when he's talking to his disciples about the end. And he says, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars, there will be earthquakes. I'm telling you all of these things now so that you are not alarmed. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which the kind of lament and the recognition that we have that the world is broken, things are not fixable on their own. That actually is a way that Jesus shows us who we are uh, mm -hmm. in, in Christ. Yeah, I mean, that same passage where he talks about wars and rumors of wars, he ends by saying, when the Son of Man comes, he comes like lightning. Yeah. When he shows up, it's going to be undeniable. We're not, we don't need to sort of uncode you right. know, these, these sort of secret things that are happening in our culture. And if we just align things right, it, we're going to pave the way for him. No, when, when he comes... Everybody's going to see it. I th mm -hmm. You know, I think that's pretty clear. So, well, related to Advent and related to Christmas, there was a video that went viral this past week. It features a, a guy with probably call it an epic beard flying sort of back and forth above a giant church auditorium. There's several other guys in the air. They're all playing drums. There's more guys playing drums on stage. The, you know, the I always think in... Every time I look at a service like this, I always remember Bart Simpson's line from when he went to a mega church and he said it was it was amazing. There were lights and smoke and Tybo. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, the video went viral for for a lot of different reasons. Some of it was sort of common culture war stuff, people saying, you know, tax the churches and all mm. of this, which which I found kind of silly. I think if we're going to tax churches for Christmas pageants, we should probably tax any 501c3 that's putting on a production of Cats right now. Uh, they're equally uh, offensive. But I wondered on a, on a lighter note around this, what's the wildest thing you've seen in one of these large-scale church productions? People flying from ceilings or yeah. explosions and, you know, pyrotechnics and the yeah. rest. Usually they're not quite that uh, involved. Usually there's, you know, singing Christmas trees and that sort of thing. But the, the one that I always think of is a, a friend of mine who had uh, gone as pastor to a church that had a tradition of these uh, live nativity scenes where they would have real uh, animals. You know exactly know who I'm talking about. I do. Uh, and uh, Jimmy Scroggins. And they had, uh, they had a camel uh, coming down the aisle in the nativity scene who fell over. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. But this but this became a viral video of its own. And a lot of people saying, wait a minute, is this what is this what happens? Do all the churches have, <laughs> have zoos in them at Christmas time? 
Well, if if I were ever a supervillain, my origin story would probably be around a a uh, it was an Easter pageant actually. I was probably eight or nine. We were living in Houston at the time. We went to Metropolitan Baptist Church, big church in the Houston area. And Pilate was supposed to have a pair of Rottweilers on either side of his throne. And so, you know, one of the dress rehearsal nights, they had all the goats and whatever, you know, coming through. They were practicing the whole thing. And they they had one of the Rottweilers there. And it was this 10-month-old, you know, puppy, and everybody was petting the Rottweiler, and he was a nice, sweet dog or whatever. I don't know what happened. Oh. I went up to pet this Rottweiler, and he took a chunk out of my forehead. There's, I actually still have the scar when you see me in person. Oh, wow. And so uh, so that would be my my villain origin story. If uh, I thought you happened. were going to say the Rottweiler devoured the lambs and the goats that were there, which would have uh, really <laughs> signified that the wolf See, had that would not be more entertaining, lied. I think. <laughs> we um, had in my home church a little girl, she was about three years old, who was going to, to sing A Silent Night, uh, and everybody was, you know, it was really sweet. But she kept saying, instead of round yon virgin, round up your virgins, uh, <laughs> mother and child, just with the most earnest, uh, and looking around, why is everyone laughing? You, you could tell this was really disorienting to her. And to be fair, we don't use yawn very often. <laughs> yeah, you might want to clarify that one. Well, Russell, I hope you enjoy this next week as we do prepare for, for Christmas. And all who are listening, uh, thank you for listening. And we will see you back here on the Bulletin next week. Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producer, Eric Petrick. Host and producer, Mike Cosper. Producer, Azure Phelps. Graphic design, Brian Todd. Social media, Kate Lucky. Director of operations, Matt Stevens. Music, Dan Phelps. Production assistants from Core Media. Coordinator, Beth Gravencourt. Audio engineer, Kevin Duthu. Video producer, John Rowland. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.